Good morning. Glad to see you all. Check one, two. You got me. Oh, there we are. Um, if you're new, I'm Josh, um, and our staff would love, love to get to meet you at some point soon. And there's a, there's a simple way to make that happen. And um, no pressure. You do it on your timing. You're not going to be, you know, this isn't, we're, trying, we're not trying to sell you a timeshare. So, um, but if, if you are new, on the back of that bulletin, there's a place where you can write your name and whatever information you feel comfortable giving us, whether that's your address, your email address, your phone number, and we would love, love, love to uh, get to know you, talk to you, answer any questions you have. Got some prayer requests, you can write those down as well. And we actually have an incentive, it's a gimmick, I want to be clear here, uh, to get that information at, at the end of this service, if you don't mind jotting that stuff down. Um, uh, when you leave, there's an info center right there in the middle of the lobby. Just keep walking straight when you got the doors. And to the right, uh, there'll be an info center. And if you don't mind giving us that information, we would love to give you a gift. It's actually a, a, a Christian Life Center t-shirt. Love to give it to you, your family, those things, because we actually want to know you and get to know you. So if you don't mind doing that, that would be awesome. Not ready to do that? That's fine. You can do it next week, the next week, or the week after that. They'll always be there. And so I'd love uh, to get to know you. Our staff would love to connect with you. So while we're talking about the back of that bulletin, uh, one of the things that we have started doing, this will be the third week. I think we finally got all the technical glitches figured out. Um, every Tuesday, we, uh, Ben, Pastor Ben and I sit down and kind of work through the questions from the sermon. So as you listen to this today, this talk, you have any questions at all about uh, what we're talking about or anything at all, just feel free to write those down. And on your way out, you can either drop it off the info center or in the offering baskets. And we'll kind of take those and field questions live at noon. You can watch it on Facebook Live or on our website on Tuesday, or you can listen or watch anytime later in the week. So if you've got any questions, please, please, please uh, know that you can um, ask them and we'd be happy to kind of uh, take a, a, a stab at that, okay? Um, so if you are new or if you haven't been here the last couple weeks, we are in a series called the Jesus Creed. And by series, here's all it means. It just means it's going to take us a little while to get through this big idea. And we're now just finished the first half of this and now we're entering the second half. So this is week five of an eight-week kind of set of talks on um, creeds. And so I don't have to be a Christian to understand creeds. We all kind of have them. And here's kind of the, the definition we've been using for creeds. Creed is just a set of beliefs that guide your life, right? And so we all have them. We all have these creeds that determine how we live our life and why we do the things we do, both for now and for those of us who are interested in maybe an afterlife or um, eternity, some of those things, heaven, you know, whatever those things are. Um, creeds also kind of guide and shape how you gain access to that. So we've just been kind of walking through and going, hey, uh, there's lots of creeds we have. Even as Christians, we have creeds like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, these, these set of beliefs that guide our lives. And it just makes sense if we all have creeds to kind of pause for a moment over the, you know, a couple months and go, are we operating with the kind of creed we want for our life? Are we having the experiences within our life that we actually want or are looking for, all those things? And so creed is just a set of beliefs that guides your life. And I just want to be really clear with you, kind of the agenda for the last eight weeks is to convince you, persuasion, argumentative, whatever it is, um, uh, that there is a better way to live. And it's not set on a, ba- uh, you know, a checklist or a bunch of rules. It's actually based on a real human. His name was Jesus. And Jesus calls us to follow him, model our lives after him. And he tells us a couple of things. He says that he's the way, the truth, and the life. Meaning if you're really looking for a way to gain access to um, those things that are eternal, and you're really looking to enjoy life now, if you want, if you want that, right? And if you're really looking for what there, if there is a, some kind of true north or absolute truth, Jesus makes the claim that he's all those things. And then he says, and no one gets to the Father but through him. So he's not being arrogant um, or dogmatic or closed-minded. He's just being very specific. He's going, would love for you to have an abundant life. That's what he says. And love for you to enjoy it. But the only way by which you can do that is 
through him. And so we just have said we believe that to be the case and would love for you to consider that possibility. Okay? So that's, I want you to know that's kind of been the framework of this. Now for the first three or four weeks, we've been looking kind of more at what do we need to know and understand? And now what we, start, what we kind of transition to the second part of this, which is saying, okay, that, let's see how this actually plays out in the scriptures where Jesus actually interacts with people and invites them into this new life. And so this has kind of been the premise, right? Um, if we think about creeds, a creed basically, right, a set of beliefs that uh, guide your life, right? So we have this thing where we go, we have behaviors, right? We all have behaviors. And based on, based on that definition, we would say our behaviors are a result of our beliefs, right? So we go, okay, a set of beliefs. We all have creeds. You get up in the morning, you go to work, and then you come home, you put money in the bank, and you have a set of beliefs. If you don't work, you don't make money. And if you don't make money, you can't pay the mortgage or pay for your kid's college, right? So just a set of beliefs you have. A man who doesn't work doesn't eat, so therefore I'm going to work so that I can, you know, um, enjoy life, have a house, uh, have our needs met, all those kind of things. Go on vacation, right? Just a set of beliefs, that got, determine our behaviors. Now, one thing that's interesting, you go, okay, if there's supposed to be a different set of beliefs that determine our behavior, how do we change these? How do we change those beliefs, right? And here's this really, really beautiful. Um, when you look at the scriptures, you got the Old Testament all declaring that Jesus is going to, that there's going to be a hero who's going to come make all things right. That's the whole Old Testament. Hey, th- there's something broken in our world. We'd all agree with that. And someone, something, where there seems to be no way in this world, God is going to make a way through a Messiah, a Christ. We find out in the New Testament that Messiah, that Christ, was Jesus. He does some pretty intentional work to help us understand that. First, he says that. He says he's that. And then he gets uh, murdered for it. And then he comes back to life to prove that everything he said is worth following. And then you look at the first century church 2,000 years ago, and you see this huge revolution where Hundreds and thousands of people are dying for this belief because they are so convinced as a result of seeing Jesus live, Jesus die, and then Jesus come back to life, right? And so the whole New Testament is the declaration that a Messiah has come and saved the day and made a way where there was no way. And so um, the way we get that is through the the first couple of books of the uh, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are what we call the Gospels. Another uh, language would be uh, those are um, biographies about Jesus' life. And so in those uh, there's basically people telling stories, we'd say, inspired by God, empowered by God, directed by God to write these stories so we'd understand who God is, how much he loves us, and what Jesus did for us, right? And in the beginning of almost all those Gospels, there is what's called the forerunner, some kind of like a trumpeter that comes, or tr- uh, that comes out and declares that the Savior has come. The one who does that is a guy named John the Baptist. He's not God. He can't save people, but he is showing up, and he's declaring that there's a new way to live. There's a new set of um, behaviors we should have as a result of some new beliefs, and he's going to point to Jesus, and he's going to go, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Or repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning you are so close to experiencing this life you've all been looking for. Didn't even know you were looking for it, but deep down you know there is something that's off and missing in our world, and John the Baptist is going to declare that there is a new way. And the way that he's going to show this new beginning is he's going to invite people to get baptized. It doesn't save them, doesn't do any of those things. But what it does do is it symbolizes the old life dying and the new life, this kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, coming, coming to be, right? And so he's going to do those things. And what's really interesting is that word repent there. We use lots of different things. It, sometimes we say, you know, do a 180. We all think repentance has to do with changing behaviors. And it does, but it doesn't start there. That language in the Greek, literally means change the way you think. Change the way you think. In other words, you want to change your beliefs. You don't start with beliefs. You start with your thoughts. Because 
It's actually your thoughts that are going to determine your beliefs. And it's your beliefs that are going to determine your behaviors. So you're going, okay, if there's a new way to live, I can't just all of a sudden wake up one day and say, I believe something different. You have to start thinking about something different and changing your thoughts and changing your ways, all those kind of things. But it all starts with uh, what happens in your head. Now, Romans uh, in the Bible in the New Testament, uh, one of the writers, Paul, who had this experience, by the way, he had a different creed, murder Christians, stop this religion. All of a sudden, he has this interaction with God, and he changes everything about the way he thinks, and he gives his life to this, right? But he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, in view of God's mercy, in view of what he did, change, uh, uh, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. So you should give yourself back to Jesus, right? And he says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, meaning not the old creed, but be transformed. How? And he says this, by the renewing of your mind, which is by literally taking the thoughts that don't make sense, emptying them out like you would the bathroom. You go in the bathroom if you're going to renovate your house and go, I'm going to keep the toilet, going to keep the shower, everything else goes, right? So you rip everything out. What Paul's saying is, at some point you got to go into your thought life and you got to remove all the stuff that isn't, thoughts from God and what he has for you. And then as a result, then you put the right thoughts in. As you put those new thoughts in, your beliefs will change. And as your beliefs will change, guess what will happen? Your behaviors will change. So you don't just wake up and just change everything about your behavior. You actually start with your thoughts. Your thoughts determine your beliefs. And your beliefs determine your behavior. So when John the Baptist shows up and says, you're so close, there's such a better life for you. All you got to do is repent, change the way you think. And because the kingdom of God is so close, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what he's really getting at here, and this is where it changes from just kind of an understanding to um, outwardly of what's happening here, but inwardly what's going on. What he's actually kind of getting at there has to do more with our identity, right? So the, uh, when we think about our behaviors, why you work, I mean, sometimes it's to pay the bills, but ultimately it has more to do with your understanding of who you are, right? Think about if you had a dad who told you you never could, right? Never amount for anything, never do anything. Some of us has that, have that deep motivation to prove him wrong, right? Had an old spouse who told you you wouldn't amount to anything. This deep motivation to prove them wrong. So in your beliefs or this idea that you have to prove someone wrong, so you work harder, you work out more, you get the job, and then you climb the corporate ladder, right? Because somewhere in your identity is this belief that your performance determines how valuable you are, right? Some of you are turning over every stone trying to find love, because somewhere in your thoughts that you understood that you aren't complete by yourself, Jerry Maguire didn't help you with that because you know that you need someone else to complete you, right? So you have these thoughts and this belief, and so you're spending all your time and energy trying to find that person who will complete you. So you get the spouse, and that one doesn't complete you. So you empty, you know, you, you discard that one and work for the next one, right? Because there's this set of beliefs, wrong beliefs, by the way, that you can't be complete on your own, and therefore you must find another person. So what happens is we define ourselves with this identity we have. And um, typically there's two ways by which we kind of discover our identity, right? Um, first one stinks, but it, I, think, I think it's accurate. The first way most of us find our identity is by what uh, someone said to us or done to us, right? So much of our flaws and brokenness are because of those things that people whispered about you or said to you or the abuse that was caused to you, right? Some of you feel like you're not worthy because of the, something that's happened in your life. So for a lot of us, our identity, a lot of it's shaped by our family of origin, shaped by our boyfriends and girlfriends growing up, shaped by teachers and coaches. Our identity, a lot of times, is defined by what someone has said about you or done to you, right? Now, the second one, this is actually one that's my issue, right? I got some of that on the first one. But the second way by which we find our identity is not what people have said about us or done to us, but what we have said about ourselves and done to ourselves, 
right? You know who talks to you the most in your life? You do. You do. You talk to yourself the most. Where at? Right here in your thoughts. Every day you're speaking to yourself, right? And some of that's been shaped by our families and our parents and grandparents. But a lot of us have some really terrible things we're saying about ourselves. And we have a lot, a lot of terrible things we have and are doing to ourselves. So, so much of our identity is kind of placed in this idea that um, someone has declared a falsehood over our lives that we've just bought as truth or done something to us that declared those things. Ignored you abused you, whatever it is, and said you weren't worthy, you weren't valuable, or you've done those things to yourself, right? You've leaned into a relationship that you thought would make you feel more worth. You've gravitated to some kind of chemical that you thought would make you feel more worth, right? But the very thing that you thought would give you more worth made you feel worth less, right? And so a lot of us in this, we have these thoughts that become our beliefs, and so our identity is just so distorted in that. So I just argued there's a third way to find your identity. Okay, and this is why this is really important, why this series really matters to me and hope it matters to you is uh, we can define our identity based on what God, and particularly here Jesus, says about you and did to you. Or says about you and did for you. So the whole argument today, guys, is to go, maybe there's a new set of thoughts and beliefs that we can understand based on who Jesus is and what he says. So that's, we'll get back to that identity at the very end of this, so lean in here. And so where we're going to find ourselves is this beautiful passage in John chapter 4. So I'm going to start in John chapter 4. It's all I'm going to read today. Lots of verses, 42. Um, Got Bibles in front of you on the pews. We'll have the scriptures up here on the screen. Um, But just going to kind of read through it and talk about it. But let me catch you up to speed if you're not sure what's going on in John chapter 4. I mean, it would make sense that you wouldn't. It's like we have every chapter memorized. And so God has shown up in the form of Jesus as a person, God incarnate. John the Baptist has showed up and declared, repent, change your thoughts, because there's a new way to live. And then he starts baptizing people, right? but he's not baptizing because he's trying to save them. He's pointing to a hero who saves people. So the, the, the big picture that they give for this new life is baptism. Old you dying, literally like getting a spiritual shower, getting a mulligan and starting fresh, right? So John the Baptist is doing this. And you know, Jesus comes on the scene and goes, I am he, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus is going to recruit some followers. They, they're called disciples who are going to kind of be his posse and go with him, learn all these things and help propel this movement forward after Jesus' death and resurrection, and then ascension into heaven. These are the guys he's going to kind of lean into and count on. And so Jesus is now making this declaration that you've got to repent, change your thoughts, because there's a new way to live. And so then Jesus' disciples are now also baptizing people, pointing to this really great moment that God is offering a new way, a new creed, right? And so in John chapter 4, uh, they've just been um, on this for a while. Jesus has spent some time in his hometown of Nazareth and kind of a province of Galilee, and now he's traveled to a different place, Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, the kind of the, the headquarters of the Jewish faith, uh, the, the, these religious folks, and um, he's baptizing some folks, and it's going to get complicated for him. And so I'll read to you. you know, what's interesting is the majority of this story is about a Samaritan woman. So this is really important for you to get is uh, uh, there's just this falsehood, this belief, wrong belief, that the church is not very woke, right, as it relates to women's issues, Me Too movement, you know, all these kind of things, and think we got to, you know, keep our eyes open and have deep empathy for what's going on. But I just want to be clear. If the church is not woke to that, it's because the church has missed the message. Because Jesus is the greatest feminist in the world. 
Like he is the one who esteems women, values women, and gives them an equal platform to all men, right? Literally, you see when Jesus comes back to life after his resurrection, and this is going to need to be news that, that covers all the, the, the globe, right? He starts with a woman with that news, right? And so in John, this, this book, John chapter 4, this entire chapter is, almost the entire chapter, is based on this one woman. So John doesn't have a lot of room to cover. In fact, he says, I can't tell you about all the miracles because if I were to tell you about all that Jesus did, I couldn't write a, a book that would fit in any library. It'd be too big. But John thinks it's important enough to highlight this woman for, you know, 42, 43, 44, 45 verses, hundreds of words about this woman. And so we're going to see this interaction with her where she's definitely going to change the way she thinks, which is going to give her some new sets of beliefs. And boy, does it change her behavior. So here goes, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. So one thing's happened in Jerusalem is the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders, they're the ones with the keys to the synagogue, right? Um, and this was complicated because um, these religious leaders, these Jews, kind of the way they paid their mortgage, the way that they had any affluence and influence all came through the temple. And so as their congregation grew, so did their pocketbooks and their wallets and their square footage of their homes and their influence. Yeah. As the congregation grew, so did their power. And I, when the congregation would dwindle, um, their power and influence would dwindle because what they required of people was in order to enter the temple, they had to pay a temple tax. So literally they were charging admission to have access to this God. They were saying that they could, you could only get access through, through, God, uh, through the, the, these Pharisees, the, through the temple. So what was happening is John was saying, that is not how this works. God is making himself available to everyone through Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of God is right here. Not in there, but right here, right? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And so these Jewish leaders were very upset. And the way by which these guys would kind of, uh, kind of mark their following would be, I'm going to get baptized, start this new way. And so all these people were doing that. And now all of a sudden, Jesus learns, while he's in Jerusalem in the area, he learns that the Pharisees also are aware of what he's doing, right? And they are not happy about this. This is really hurting their, you know, their, their movement because less people are paying the temple tax. They have less money, all those things. And so what has happened here is Jesus goes, oh, I understand now what the Pharisees know. Um, and then he gives us some clarity. He says, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Um, for us, this is kind of a moot point. The reason this is important here is because we've got to understand this was written to a specific group of people at a specific time. So first century readers would have gone, wait, but I never saw Jesus baptized. I saw his disciples baptized. So if John just says the first part, they go, maybe John's words aren't true. Does John not really know Jesus? Because it wasn't Jesus who was baptizing, it was his disciples. So this is specifically John's going, hey, for those of you who are around in this day, saw all these things, this is kind of a footnote for you to uh, clarify the truth of this, right? So, um, and this is what it said. So the uh, Pharisees know that Jesus is baptizing, right? They don't like it. And so what's going to happen? Because they're in Jerusalem. They're going to come. They would come and confront Jesus. And he's going, I, got, I ain't got time for your drama right now. We got work to get done. And so verse 3, it says this. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So what we're going to figure out is, let me show you here. Um, uh, here you go. Let's pretend this is the Mediterranean Sea, okay? Mediterranean Sea. And so you have kind of nation of Israel. That got Judea. Down here, okay, Judea. In Judea would be where Jerusalem is, right? The province, uh, Judea, Jerusalem. And then up here would be Galilee, okay? This is where Nazareth is. So Jesus is from Bethlehem's down here. Nazareth, uh, Capernaum is up here. And this one, Capernaum's kind of like right here on the water. Um, that's where Peter's from. So this is where Jesus recruited his first followers. And now he started here. What's interesting, when he starts ministering here, this is so messed up. He's in his hometown in Nazareth. And they go, Jesus, we have no interest in you. Shut your mouth. 
Go somewhere else. We can handle it here. We don't need you to fix this. We got it all covered, just uh, that kind of thing, right? And so Jesus literally is kicked out of his own hometown. What does he do? He travels down here to Judea. He's going to spend some time. He finds out that the Pharisees in Jerusalem are not very happy about this. And so they go, uh, hey, let's, let's not deal with the drama right now. And so they're going to head back up to Galilee, right? So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Verse 4, very important. He says, now he had to go through Samaria. This is important. So if you've got Galilee up here and Judea down here, right here in the middle is Samaria. Got it, Samaria. And um, this is really complicated. Uh, hundreds of years prior, hundreds and hundreds of years prior, um, the, the Samaritans, the ones who lived there, they, um, there was big revolts within Israel, all sorts of battles and uh, lots of different people conquering them. As they looked at God and said, we don't need your, we don't want you. He takes away, he removes their, his provision and his protection and lots of different an- enemies come in. And so as that was all going, the Samaritans go, we actually like this new culture that's come into here. We like the things they like. We like the movies they show. We like all those things. But we know we're supposed to still be Jews. Or we, we, we like our pedigree. We like that we can celebrate Abraham as our patriarch and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And we like all that. So they basically said, we want to keep a little bit of the religion. But we also, we want to keep all the fun, that the, the party that these people are bringing in. Right? And so they kind of created their own religion. And one of the things they did is they started marrying the non-Jews and created kind of what the Jews would call half-breeds, right? So these people down here and these people up here hated these people. Hated these people. The, the best way I could describe it, and it's, I don't even think this does it justice, but it's still just so disgusting. They had so many rules where they couldn't even interact. Like, it would be a lot like Jim Crow laws, right? I mean, to think we, in our country... We would say, you can't drink from that water fountain because a colored person, that would be the language, right? And I drank from it. Do you understand, like, just the crazy vitriol, evil, and hate that is? That's what was here. They hated, hated, hated these people. In fact, uh, the distance from here to here, if you, straight line, is three days. But you know what they'd do? They'd go all the way around. Six days. They would literally travel twice as long. Remember, there's no hotels. They don't have cars. I mean, this is, this is a hefty traveling time, right? They would literally spend twice the time because they hated these people. Deep down, they were jealous because these people, they had their God and they got to have fun too. So these folks in here, they would, they would talk about their religious pedigree, Jacob, Joseph, Abraham, and they would think about a God that one day will save. They would talk about the Messiah. But the way that they worshiped was very pagan-esque. In fact, uh, um, I want to be blunt, but also cautious with words here. Um, they like to worship without clothes, with other people, lots of other people. So they w- created this temple where all sorts of debauchery would happen. And so the, the Jews on both sides of this would look at them like, you are so disgusting. You want your cake and eat it too. You want to show up on Sunday or Saturday and worship Yahweh, empty your sin bucket, Right? You want to empty your sin bucket so you can carry that big bucket and fill it up all week long. And boy, were they filling it up. To be honest with you, um, this may sound offensive. It's probably not too different than Western or American Christianity, right? We believe Jesus is Lord. We believe Jesus saves a lot of us too. But boy, we live most of our life like none of that matters, right? And so these, these Samaritans have figured out a way to talk about their pedigree and the religious, you know, value of who God was and who Moses was, but their lives every single day did not reflect anything about a God that was um, available to them or looking in on them or caring for them, right? They go, yep, God, we want you for fire insurance. We don't want to go to hell if that's a possibility. 
but we really don't want you in the middle of our mess because we're, we're having too much fun here, right? And so the Jews hated them, hated, right? And so when it says, verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. Well, he didn't have to, based on what, the, what his followers would have said. Hey, Jesus, when we came down here, we went this, the, the long route. Like, why are we doing this? You know what you're going to say? Really, really important. So that word had there has everything to do with Jesus being obedient to his father and everything to do with there is a divine appointment. The whole reason he goes right through Samaria is he's about to have a, what's going to seem like a serendipitous appointment, right, uh, with this Samaritan woman at a well. And I would say the reason it says now he had to go through Samaria is because he had to connect with this woman. He had to, right? And I would just argue this is where I don't want to be, I don't want to be too mystical or, I mean, I don't, I mean, I, or any of those kind of things. But I actually think, I actually think, uh, those kind of divine appointments still happen to the point where I think, even today, there are some folks in this room, it's just the same. That Jesus is going, no, no, I have to make myself known at this church today. Because there are people sitting here, they have to understand what I'm going to share with this Samaritan woman. Because it is exactly, exactly what you need to hear. Okay? Verse 5 continues, and this is what it said. Um, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So remember, um, in the Old Testament, God says that where there is no way, he'll make a way, and he made this covenant promise. He gave it to Abram and said, throughout your whole lineage, I'm going to continue to care for you, even though you're going to turn your back on me. And even through that lineage is going to come a king who's going to be a good king. And even through that lineage is going to become a savior, Jesus, who's going to come through that. So it starts with this promise of Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons, one of them named Joseph. And so John's going, I want you to understand the religious history of this town. And in that town where Joseph lived, God gave Jacob a well, okay? So this is in the middle of a desert, and there is a huge well, okay? Middle of a desert. So I don't know if you've ever looked at, uh, like, a map of a desert. You know, like, if you're looking at Google Earth, and you look down on a map, and you see lots of green in one area in the middle of the desert. What do you know? There's, there's a lot of water there, right? A lot of water, right? And so in this place, there's going to be this well that still works. It's been working for hundreds and hundreds of years. And there's going to, so Jesus is going to come through this place. And the town's name is Sychar. So um, in Hebrew, that term is Vegas, if that makes any sense to you, right? I mean, that's a joke. It's not really Vegas, but it might as well be, right? It is, it is a place of just enjoying whatever there is to enjoy, right? And so Jesus, Christian Jesus, because he's the Christ, Homeschool Jesus is about to walk into this debauchery of a place, right? So, so pay attention to this. It gets really interesting. So Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well. So I want to point out to you, he was tired, which is real easy to miss this and not the, the big part of the message, but he was tired, meaning the God of the universe put on human form to the point where he literally existed like we did. This is just so profound in terms of the humility he shows. So he was tired, and it tells us this, it was about noon. Now, this is an interesting time because no one would be at the well at noon because it's a very, very hot city. We're talking about 120, 130 degrees, hot sun right above your head at noon. And so what would happen is people would come get their water either really early in the morning, prior to sunrise, or late in the evening after sunset because it would drop 20, 30 degrees, right? So they would be, it would be a reasonable time to carry a big load of water. And so what would happen most of the time would be it'd be a really early morning thing, right? Women, our children, would bring their big bucket. They'd come to the well and they'd sit for a while. And this is, uh, yeah, so that, uh, so the, like, it's like Starbucks, right? They just sit there, they chat, they'd gossip, they'd catch up on the day, and then they'd put the big bucket of water on their head and they'd carry it back home. 
Now, they would hope that it would cover them for the whole day. But if not, they would make the same trip that evening, depending on if they're washing, whatever it is they're doing, right? And they would do this day in and day out. So it would typically happen early in the morning, late in the afternoon. So Starbucks is not crowded at noon here, right? So Jacob's well should be empty. So Jesus is going to sit down because he's tired. Now remember, he says he has to be there, so we know there's going to be a pretty neat encounter. And so here's what happens. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus had said to her, Will you give me a drink? Okay, so we, we can make some um, deductions from this. Um, first of all, what we can understand here is it's noon, so it's weird that a Samaritan woman would show up then. Remember, she's going to come early in the morning or late in the evening. And so one of the things that we know about Samaria, particularly for the Jews, is this whole area here was considered outcast. They were hated. They were despised, right? So this is a, a group of outcasts, and this lady is such an outcast of the outcast that she's not going to show up and everybody else is there. She doesn't, she's got these thoughts and these beliefs that maybe people will whisper about her. Maybe they'll talk about her. Maybe they'll make her uncomfortable. She's not going to make eye contact. None of those things, right? So we have this lady who, as a result of her beliefs that she's not valued by society, she doesn't matter. She doesn't have a good identity. She's going to have some behaviors, which means she travels in the middle of the hot day to get water. She's got to have water. Without water, you die. But she cannot go when other people are there. So she's going to show up there. And now Jesus is going to look at her. And speak to her. Now, he is a Jew. She is a Samaritan. He is a man. She is a woman. Like, this is, this is crossing all sorts of cultural and religious boundaries. And he's going to look at her. No, he has nothing. Remember, he just showed up. He doesn't have a cup. He has nothing. And he's going to look at her. And he's going to ask her for a drink of water. Now, John's going to make sure you understand what's going on here. Because he's saying, hey, first of all, uh, verse 8, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. So he's all by himself with this woman. This is already dangerous. Homeschool Jesus in Vegas, right? His buddies have left him, and here he is. So he is there with this woman. The disciples have now gone into town to get taquitos, right? So he is all by himself. So they're getting taquitos. Jesus is sitting here, and he's asking this woman for a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Right? Do you understand how inappropriate this is? Don't look at me. Don't talk to me. I'm going to keep my eyes down. How can you ask me for a drink? It's like, do you not understand? This is highly inappropriate. And then John gives us a disclaimer. For the Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. Remember six days, three days? That literally means, that the language here literally means they don't share dishes. Like, they see them as so disgusting that they don't, like, you know, circle, circle, dot, dot. Now I got my Samaritan shot. Like, I mean, it's that kind of thing, right? I mean, these are... They, they, they don't like each other. They hate each other. And she's going, you won't even look at me, sit close to me. That's not how this works in this culture. Do you not understand I'm a woman and I'm a Samaritan? I live here in debauchery, right? You're so high and mighty and think of yourself as so um, enlightened, right? And so she gives us an understanding that this is not a normal conversation. In fact, this conversation should not happen, right? This is more than a side hug. And this is the church, right? And so this shouldn't happen in this way. And so, uh, verse 10, Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, I wish I could have some time to talk about this. Don't have time to talk about it. I'll, I'll, I'll cover it on the podcast on Tuesday. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you've seen kind of this illustration of the old us leaving and water coming in, representing Jesus. That It's not that we have to decrease. We just ask God to increase. And what happens is all that stuff eventually leaves, slowly but surely, cumulative effect. That's the living water we're talking about here, right? This idea that God, God's going, no, no, there is a type of water that is living. If you, would have, if you would know what it is that who I am that's asking, you would have asked him 
and he would have given you living water. Now, he's talking about himself in third person and referring to himself as God. And some of us are like, that's pretty arrogant. But he's God, so he's allowed to talk about himself in third person. You're not God, so you shouldn't talk about yourself in third person, right? So, but he's God, so this is not uncomfortable. He's allowed to do this. So he's making these proclamations. going, if you're knowing who he is that's asking, he is as me, right? And so then he's going to point to this living water. Now, this is really, really important, okay? So we understand water and its necessity for livelihood. You will not live without water. We know that. You can go away without food, but water is not one of those things. We understand wholeheartedly that for our bodies to survive, it needs water. Now, who do you think created it that way? The creator, God, right? And if he created that way, it must be because he had a, something he wanted us to understand about the need for that in our life. This is important. So he's going, let me help you understand from the beginning of time when dad and I and the Holy Spirit were sitting down trying to figure out how do we create people? Oh, you know what? They need water. We need to make sure they understand water because maybe if they can understand water, they can make the connection that in order to live here and now, there's got to be some kind of sustenance. And maybe we can point to the connection that there's actually a greater picture of what's going on. It is not just about the here and now, but it's about forever and always. And they're going to need to understand how they get sustenance for that. Oh, then we can call this H2O, right? And then we'll talk about the holy or the living water. And so here's what he's getting at. So important. We miss this all the time. I was reading, I was actually talking to Senator Deniman on Friday. I'll share with you a little bit real quick. We have this dream of building the, the largest accessibility, uh, inclusive playground in our area, like huge. We want every kiddo to be able to enjoy it, and so um, there's some state funds for that. Uh, in fact, I heard on Friday, first time this news is coming out, that the state wants to write us a check for 50 grand to get going on that. So I'll share with you more about that, and so we're talking about that, and talking about our counseling center, and 130, or the, the New London Counseling Center, and 132 different clients came through in September, right? And so we're talking about just the need to deal with mental health. And by the way, it's not a partisan issue, okay? And so talking about those things and dealing with it, and I was just sharing things, statistics, and he was sharing back with statistics. And from this time 10 years ago to this time now, suicide rates are twice as high as they were. 10 years, twice as high. Meaning people are twice as likely at this point in, in time than they were 10 years ago to take their own life. You go, how is that? And some of you go, that's selfish. No, it, it, it's so much more complicated than that. And this is what it is. You see, we're not just a being that has a bunch of chemicals that make us a body, bones, cartilage, muscle. Deep down in us, and you know this, you know this, there is a part of us, our soul. You know what I'm talking about? That part that you can never, ever escape. When you lay down at night, the part that races your mind, the part that feels joy and that feels deep sadness. Like that's beyond some chemical in your body, right? That soul lives in us. And our souls are so malnourished that we look in this world and go, the only thing I want to do is not that in my, I got physical pain, all that kind of stuff, but I want to escape my own soul. That's what we're saying. Now, there's all sorts of other complications that comes to chemical imbalances. I don't have time to talk about all the brain and all that stuff. But the reality is the reason that people are twice as likely to commit suicide as now as they were 10 years ago is because they want to escape their soul. And there are folks in this room, and you know exactly what that's like. Hear me. I, I get it. I get it completely. There are some of us that just, we want so bad to escape our soul because it gives us so much pain, so much greater than any physical pain that people can understand, like just absolute destruction. And so what Jesus is saying here is, hey, Samaritan woman, like it's not just about you need some water today. Let me actually, let me start talking a language that you really need. Your soul needs nourishment, right? 
So I've been thinking about this whole thing. One of the reasons that I'm so um, passionate about imagine like an inclusive playground is, boy, I, I didn't, I didn't know that, didn't ha- understand. You know, I, I lived in the world growing up where you saw someone with special needs or, you know, some kind of disability and my parents would slap me and say, don't stare, don't stare. You know what I'm talking about? You've forgotten the same language. No one told me, look at them and say hello, right? So I just learned early on to not look, like just pretend they don't exist, right? And what's crazy is, we know a lot of people that have really good bodies but really bad souls. I would just say there's a whole different category of people that have really bad bodies but really incredible souls, right? And so you look at this, you go, there are some beautiful souls, and we don't even look at as human beings, right? And it gets even more complicated. I'm not talking about just disability. Some of you are getting up in age, or some of you have parents or grandparents who are well up in age. And so, like, they literally, physically can't do the things they did before. But their soul is still fully alive. But somehow we look at their able bodies and go, there must be something wrong. And we don't even see them for the soul that they have anymore, right? Some of you are in your 80s, 90s, and you still feel like in your soul you're 35, right? No one, it's hard because you're going, I'm not old. You think I'm old. My body looks old, but I'm not old, right? And so we just see this beautiful part that somehow we miss in the middle of just paying attention to how strong we are, how fit we are, how fast we can run. And there are some beautiful, beautiful souls that can't communicate what their souls are feeling. Right? And so we know that. Like, this isn't even a Bible thing or a Christian thing. We can see people and see their souls, and boy, should we value them. And what Jesus is saying here is, look, I understand you're thirsty, but there is something much larger at play here than whether or not you get a drink of water and your body's taken care of. Deep down inside of you, there is a part of you that has to be nourished. And there is a way by which that nourishment can happen and it's going to feed your soul, and it's going to feed your soul for now, even when your body starts failing you, and it's going to feed your soul for all eternity. And what Jesus calls that is he says it's living water. Living water. He's saying what you're looking for, what you're seeking is out there, but it's, it's in a category you've never understood before. And I just would say this is language that as a Christian, understanding the Bible, that we have access to. We can look at our world and go, boy, people's souls are really hurting and we can go, well, what's the solution for that? Boy, something about our behaviors, a result of our soul really hurting. Okay, what beliefs have to happen? And what I would argue here, and what Jesus is about to say is he's going to go, there is no place by which your soul can be fed other than me. There's no, not, that's what Jesus is saying. There's no place by which you can have a enriched soul filled with life. You can look anywhere and everywhere, but we can look at the data. We can look at our own lives. It will not be satisfied. That craving will not be quenched. So he's looking into her, peering into her and going, oh, sweetie, it's noon and you're here by yourself and you're just trying to get water, but there's something so much more important that I'm going to give you today. And so continues and it says this. She says, are you greater then our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. So she's going to go, no, 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 what? Let me tell you my beliefs. You know my pedigree, pedigree is? You know who my great, 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 granddaddy is? Right? It's Jacob. And you're now saying that you're greater than he. You're talking about you offer something. Do you not understand? For the last hundred and, or thousands of years that, that this whole area has been taken care of, all the people who live in it, by this well, like, he, so he's going to point out the livestock. He's going to point out all the people. Every generation, all taken care of by this water. And you're saying there's a more important water than this water. Because I'll tell you, sir, Vegas doesn't happen without this water, right? So he, he's literally going, no, no, let me tell you what my beliefs are. This is the most important thing. This is why I'm here at noon, even though it's hot. Because i got to get this stuff. You're telling me you're greater than that? Jesus answered, very simply, everyone who drinks this water, they'll be thirsty again. 
You understand? Well, ha, see, God, I'm so glad we came up with that, that all human beings needed water to understand this. Okay? Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them, they will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So you're talking about the here and now and the present. You just, you just want that, that quick fix. Your appetite saying, I need some water, you want that. But listen, you're going to do this every day or twice a day. In your misery, you're going to come back here in the middle of the day and get some water. And you will be thirsty again. Let me tell you about water. Let me tell you about something that can quench your soul that will leave you not thirsty. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. You're telling me. You're talking to me about indoor plumbing? Because Jesus, I hear that might come one day, right? So you're just saying, is that what you're giving me? Like you're going to say Abraka Jesus and now all of a sudden I'm going to have like a, a, a... a pipe in my house? You're talking about that? By the way, I just would point out, boy, are we lucky. We live in the greatest time in the history of the world to enjoy the, the pleasures and the conveniences of this world. And we'd have to ask ourselves why. So that you can have more time to celebrate who God is and tell other people about him. That's just my, uh, real quick there. I think it's worth considering. Six saints. So she goes, I want that water. He's going, you're still not getting it. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Oh, you want this? Oh, you want to buy the timeshare? Okay, go get your husband. Come back. She replied, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is just quite true. So he's going to peer into her life and really point out the neglect of her soul. You say, your soul has been so hurt. You keep thinking it's the next man who's going to do it. And you got that whole piece of it, right? I don't know why she has five husbands. I don't know why this sixth guy is, but can you imagine the pain she must be in? Can you imagine she's got to show up at noon and now we know why because everybody whispers about her. And it's not like she can hop on a plane and move somewhere. She can't pay for herself. She lives in a culture that is fully dependent on men. Her value in that culture is how many babies she can give birth to. That's it. So five different husbands have said she's not worth it. Maybe one of them died. Maybe three of them died. But five different ones have abandoned her in some way. And now she's on the sixth one. And he is not even interested in marrying her. He is using her. So can you imagine the pain she must be in in this? And so Jesus says, yeah, I know you're going to have a husband. You've had five. You're on the sixth. And you're not even married to him. This isn't Jesus being abusive. One of the interesting things that we've got to figure out when we think about kind of this, this pattern is at some point we need to have some kind of base level. Right? So you see in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve mess it up, they go and hide, and God comes up to them. The first thing he says to them, where are you? That's not because God doesn't know. But at some point, people have to at least come to terms with where they actually are. Where, where are you? He's, she's going to go. Right. And when talking to Elijah, when he's panicked, he says, Elijah, what are you doing? Not because he doesn't know, but he's going to say, hey, could you pause for a second and identify where you are? So she's going, okay, let's just start with the base level here. Boy, you've got to be in pain. You've had five husbands. You're now on the sixth. You're here at noon. Right? And so she's going to respond. And can you imagine the awkwardness of it? This guy just read her mail and called out her junk. He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. He's a man. She's a woman. So this is all sorts of complicated. And at first glance, what happens here, you're going to think she's changing the subject because it's pretty funny. She says first, um, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Ha <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are. Um, and then she goes, Hey, look over here instead. Squirrel, our ancestors worshiped on the mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she's going to go, oh, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about worship. At first glance, it looks like she's probably changing the subject. But at second glance, what I really think John wants us to understand that God wants us to understand and probably what's going on in her heart, even if she can't explain it. 
she's actually talking about her own behavior. You see, she has these beliefs. And, she, and when we're talking about behavior here, let me give you another word for it. I think it's actually a better one. That's worship. Right? You have these beliefs that your value is based on how much you work, so you worship your job. You have these beliefs that your value is based on how much your spouse loves you, so you worship your marriage. You have these beliefs that say that uh, my, your entire identity is your kids, so you worship them. And then one day, they uh, go off to college, or they go away, and they don't come back. And then you have the first Christmas where they're not there, and your life is a wreck, right? Because what you are worshiping has now abandoned you, right? Because your soul has been filling it with these things. And that word worship so so, so important here. When she's using that word, the word worship in the Greek, and this means to kiss, to show affection in that way to something. So she's actually talking about, I've, I've actually kissed lots of men. Kissing one right now, that's not my husband, right? Uh, so there's this deep affection. And so, hey, let me ask you a question, Jesus. Um, our ancestors said that you had to worship on the mountain. And, and you're saying, uh, the Jews are saying you have to worship in Jerusalem, in the temple, so we can, they can charge the temple tax, right? How do I worship? If that's what I got to fill my soul with, is I got to give affection somewhere, because we all do it based on our beliefs and our behaviors. We all got to do that. How do I worship something that's not my husband's? How do I worship something that's not my man or their protection or their provision in my life? How do I do that? So what she's asking is, she's talking about two different places. She says on the mountain, and he's saying in Jerusalem, 700 years, maybe a little bit uh, earlier, uh, there's a guy named Nehemiah. So if you know the story of the Old Testament, God gives David this beautiful picture of this place by which they can have access to him. uh, God does. He says, hey, we're going to build a temple so you can know I'm present and you can know where to find me, right? And so David gets kind of the blueprints. Then his son Solomon builds it. And then hundreds of years later, there's this massive war, and the, the, the temple gets destroyed. God gives a vision to another guy, Nehemiah, to say, hey, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Rebuild it. And Nehemiah is going to be so passionate. And these Samaritans are going to show up and go, hey, can we help? Can we help build the temple? And, and he's going to go, nope, because we don't drink from the same cup you do. You're dirty, you're disgusting, go back to Vegas. Right? That's literally what Samar- uh, that Nehemiah is going to say to them. He's going to keep building the wall. And so people are going to go back and they're going to build on their own mountain, their own temple where all these pagan things are happening. She's going, so my people say we worship here. Your people say we worship there. What do we actually do, right? So she's going, where do, well, if I need this water and I need to fill my soul, if it has to do with worship, where do I worship? And watch what he says. Woman. This is not a mean thing. This isn't like woman, go make me a sandwich. This is a term of affection here. He actually refers to his mother the same way. So this is, this is a term of affection. Woman, Jesus said, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So what he's getting at is at some point where we worship, our bodies become that temple. You can tune in on Tuesday to hear more about that. Not, didn't make the cut for the sermon. Um, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation. Watch this. It's from the Jews. Make sure you read that correctly. It's not for the Jews. It's from the Jews. Not for the Jews, but from the Jews. In other words, remember when my dad, when the God of the universe told Abraham that where there is no way, he's going to make a way, and that through his lineage was going to become a savior? That's from the Jews. So salvation comes from the Jews. He's actually talking about himself. He's saying, I come from that lineage. David is my great, 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 great granddaddy, right? Jacob is my great, 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 great grandfather. It's coming through me, right? So salvation comes for, uh, and, uh, from the Jews. Verse 23, yet a time is coming. And by the way, has now come. So he's going, it was coming. You're right. And now it's come. He's literally ushering in right now. Here's the kingdom. Has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So there will come a day, and it's now come, where uh, the Father, uh, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So he's saying there's a couple different ways he's going to worship. There's going to be this, this, this thing you can't quite see that's present. There's this spirit. The spirit of God is going to come, and you're going you're to feed your soul with it. 
And it's going to be true and right and good. So spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worship, pay attention to this, the Father seeks. You notice that? He doesn't say that he's looking for worship. He's looking for worshipers. This isn't about just his glory. This is about the connection to the people who he's going to kiss, and they're going to kiss him back. Right? And this is really, really important here, guys. Um, This is where Jesus introduces the word Father. So he's going to talk to this lady, and he's going to say to her, hey, you're looking for worship, and let me just tell you, here's where it's going to come. And there's going to come a day where the, the Father because you see, when I read this passage, and I think it's because I got two girls now, I, I'm going, how in the world does this lady have to go through five men and now six men? You know why? I can double dog, prom- I, 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 not dare, but I will promise you with everything I am, that will never, ever happen to my daughters. Right? I mean, she's wandering from man to man because she can't provide for herself. She can't protect herself. So she keeps going to a, a new guy who's probably abusing her in a, infinite ways because she can't pay her own mortgage. Like she's going from thing to thing. And I go, where's her dad? And here's where her dad is. Either her dad is a deadbeat or he's dead. Right? He's either a deadbeat or dead. Because in this culture, this woman is fully dependent on a, on a man. And the first man she was supposed to be dependent on was her daddy. And so if dad's still in the picture, I'm telling you, my girls, this won't happen to you. They'll just move back in my basement. I'll buy them cats and everything will be okay. Right? Somebody's going to invite them back in. There is no way in the world I would let that happen to my daughters. You can go, where's her dad? Right? In this culture where the dad is the provider and the protector, where's the dad? Right? And we can look at it and go, yeah, that's her lifestyle, whatever. We can look at it religiously and go, shame on her. Or we can look at it with empathy and understanding and go, this isn't what she dreamt about. It's not what you dream about. The parts of your soul that are in pain, it's not what you dreamt about. And so what's happened here is there's no dad. She's got kids, multiple marriages, it's all sorts of complicated. I couldn't, I would hate to see her, her, her tax returns, right? All sorts of complicated. Different health insurance policies, all, I mean, it's just complicated, right? So you look at this and you just go, man, with deep empathy, what Jesus is saying here is, you got to understand what a true father is like. By the way, this is homeschool Jesus by himself sitting with this girl in Vegas. She's vulnerable and he can do this. Why can he do this in dudes? We got to figure this out. Because he doesn't have an adulterous heart, he has a father's heart. He has a father's heart. He sees her with love and compassion because he sees her as he would see his own children, as he sees his own children, as I see my own children, right? And so he says, the father, the father. And he says, the father seeks. He continues and he says this. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So God is this father that comes and makes himself worship. He kisses you. I mean, he's your father. You kiss him back. Like, I mean, I tell you, I love when my girls crawl into our bed after 8 a.m. Anytime before that, it's inappropriate. Um, and they just crawl in bed, and they're, every now and then, you know, they'll be real snuggly. Right now, Sophie's eating a lot of candy because it's Halloween, and it's, it's just poor. I mean, it's pure poison in her brain, just pure poison, right? So she's been eating it all, and she gets, like, these happy fits, and they're cute and dangerous. And she'll come up to me, and she'll go, like that. I'm like, oh, goodness, we'll get this. And she'll grab my cheeks, and she'll just hold me, and then kiss my head, and go, I love you. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, that is so beautiful, right? This is love between a dad and a father and a daughter, right? And there are many of us who've never had that experience. And Jesus is reading into this girl and going, oh, you don't even have the right language to understand this. Let me tell you, your God is going to be spirit and he's going to worship. You're going to be able to worship him and connect him in spirit and in truth. That means everywhere you are, wherever you go, he will be there with you. And he is true and he is right and he is good. She says, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. 
when he comes, he will explain everything to us. So she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know we live in debauchery. I know we live in Vegas, but I've heard about this guy. I heard about him through Abraham and Jacob. Right, that there's, we hear that there's going to be a Messiah. We hear that there's going to be a Christ who's going to come and seek out true worshipers. And where there is no way, he's going to make a way. He's going to come and he's going to show us how to be adopted back into the family. Oh, I've heard about that. I've heard about that. I just don't know how to get there. I don't know how to do this. So I just go from man to man. I'm not sure what else to do. I just stay busy. I, I've heard about that. Watch this. Verse 26. Jesus goes, and Jesus said, shh, shh, listen, listen. I don't, I know what's coming. I don't know. She's probably sobbing. Hey, and he goes, shh, 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 shh. I'm him. You get this? Like, you've been looking everywhere. And look, look, look. I'm him. Like, you've been looking for this Messiah. I, Jesus declared, I, the one you're speaking about. Homeschool Jesus. That's me. Like, here I am. I came to you in Samaria. I met you here. I am him. Like, she's literally going, that thing you're looking for. Remember, I told you there was an appointment. I had to make this because you had to hear this. There is a way where there was no way. There is a way to get back to the Father. There is a way for the Father to seek out true worshipers. I am him, and I am seeking you. Now, watch this. Just then, the disciples, man, they ruined a good moment, uh, returned and were surprised to find them talking with a woman. But no one asked. Uh, what do you want? Why are you talking to her? Hey, what are we doing? We left him in Vegas. We got taquitos. Hey, you want to ask him? Ask him, ask him. Why is he talking to the woman? She's crying. He's holding her hand. What happened? I thought he was godly, right? All these different things. And they're going, somebody ask. Verse 28. Then, so the disciples show up. They interrupt it. Oh, wow, that's awkward. Do you want to ask him? I'm not going to ask him. I don't ask him. He made dead people walk. I don't want him to make me dead, right? Whatever that is, right? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Right? Remember she came, she had one, one, one mission, to get some water. Right? Because she was thirsty. She literally leaves the jar and heads back into town. And so they all came out of the town and made their way towards him. So this is really complicated. Remember? Because she had these thoughts. No man loves me. I must not be valuable. I'm dirty. I'm gross. I'm unlovable. I deserve nothing good. I will go get my water at noon. I cannot make eye contact with anybody. I can't connect with them. She has these beliefs that the best thing I can do is just keep my head down and do what I'm told. Get my water. Go back home every day. Right? Doesn't make eye contact. She literally leaves the jar. New thoughts. Maybe I am loved. Maybe there is a dad who really cares for me. Maybe there really is a Messiah. Maybe where there was no way, there is a way. Maybe I actually am valued more than I ever understood. What does she do? She leaves her jar and she just starts talking to anyone. She's making eye contact with males, females. It just doesn't matter. She's just declaring that there is possibly Messiah. So, uh, so she goes and does that. People start making their way back. Um, meanwhile, the disciples <laughs> urge them. This is so funny. They just miss it. Rabbi, eat something. Here, taquito. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And the disciples said to each other, did someone have brought him food? <laughs> did that woman make him a sandwich, Right? Like, in this moment, like they're, they're just missing it. He, again, he's talking about the food that nourishes our soul, right? And they're like, ah, you mean somebody make you some soup there, Jesus? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me in to finish his work. So he's going, I have a mission. So the man came to seek and save that which is lost. And so then he declares, hell is heaven. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest. So you have all this work that you do, and then eventually you'll reap the reward. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. In Samaria, they are ripe for harvest. So he goes, I tell you. Look around you. Look around you. These are people who have no idea that they're loved. Look around you. These are people whose souls have never been nourished. Look around us. Every interaction at Sunoco, behind the cash register, and the person in front of you or behind you at Starbucks, every single one of them, look around. 
they do not know that their soul also must be nourished. We have all these self-help books, but no one knows that there is a God of the universe who wants to nourish our souls. Look, right for harvest. They are right for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Look, it is happening. These people's souls need to be nourished. Ten, uh, twice as likely to commit suicide now than 10 years ago. These are souls that must be nourished, right? There are souls that must be nourished. Thus the saying, one sows, another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. We didn't work for this. We didn't set up this world. And he's going, but souls have to be nourished. And it is ripe for the harvest. Others have done the hard work, and you've reaped the benefits of their labor. You're going to see this. Watch this. He's going to say, watch what you're about to see in Samaria. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Remember, Jesus was in his hometown. He gets kicked out. He goes to Vegas, and they're like, oh, come in, stay, stay. He is welcomed into this town, right? And because of his words, many more became believers. And this is the most beautiful part, and I love when this happens for us. They said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you've said. We no longer believe because you made that declaration. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. I promise you, keep telling, keep telling your husband, keep telling your wife, keep telling your kids, keep telling your coworkers. You're going to declare the goodness of what God does in your soul, in your soul. And one day they're going to look at you and go, look, I don't believe this now because you tell me this. I believe you because it's actually fed my soul too. So what we have to figure out is, do you believe that? Do you believe that there is living water that is available to you? And here's where it starts, right? I told you, either we get our identity, by understanding or by what someone else has said or done to us, boy, did that woman have some rough times with that. Boy, have we. We get our identity by what other people have said and done to us, right? Or, for me, big part, we get our identity by what I have said about myself and done to myself. But there's a third option. We can now get our identity the same way the Samaritan woman did and then go tell this good news to other people from what Jesus says about you and what he did for you. So here, here, understand this. We understand what value is. Remember, this woman thought, I have no value. Why? What's value? How do we get value? It's really, really elementary. Value is what someone is willing to pay for something, right? I can say, I'll sell you these shoes for $1,000. You laugh and go, I can go get them at Target for 40 right? right? You're not willing to pay it, so therefore they're not that valuable, right? But uh, or your house, you can say it's worth half a million dollars, but if the market bears 300000 that's what it's worth. So what is your value? What was her value? What was someone willing to pay for you? The God of the universe stepped out of heaven onto this planet, was put on a Roman cross, stripped naked, and died a brutal death to show you how much you're valued. Your value, creator of the universe, is death. By the way, we know it's true because he came back to life. So what does Jesus say about you? You are immeasurably valuable. What did he do for you? He paid the price on a Roman cross, which is why I love the opportunity for us to get communion together because it literally is that picture of what he says about you and what he did for you. So Pastor Gary's like, we're going to walk you through communion, but here's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear, this is available to you because Jesus has made this available to you. This understanding of what Christ does for us is available to you. Maybe this is the first time you'll ever take communion because it's the first time you actually will believe that his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. But this table is available to you. So Gary, would you come and lead us in communion as we close? I'd like to invite the ushers and the servers to come at this time as well. Testing, testing. So today, um, communion is available. And, you know, as we're thinking about this whole idea of what does it really mean to be valued by God, we are valued by God, and it's demonstrated in all that Christ has done. So today, as you're um, dismissed by row by your usher, um, you're invited to come down, simply take 
a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup, and then partake of it. And if you would um, be helpful to have gluten-free, there's a gluten-free station right over here as well. So when we gather around the table, one of the things that happens is we're reminded who we are by God's love. We're reminded that we are actually God's children and that God has paid a great price for us. And in the midst of our lives, all these things have tried to shape us. I mean, we've been shaped by how people viewed us, how they treated us. We've been shaped by the way that we've seen ourselves and interpreted our lives. But the greatest shaping takes place in this God who is actually willing to give his life so that we can have life. This God who says, you're so valuable that I'm going to die and I'm going to forgive you for your sin because I can do that for you, but you can't do that for yourself. So today as we come to the table, remember that. Paul wrote it this way. He said, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Then he says this. He says, you know, rarely someone will die for a righteous person, though a good person, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So today, this table is here by God's grace for you. I want to remind you of the story. It's a story in which we understand God's love. Christ, sitting with his disciples in the upper room, um, took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it, and then he broke it. And he passed it to them, and he said to them, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat of this, and do this in remembrance of me. Then the same way he took a cup, and he gave thanks to God for that as well. And he said, this is the new covenant, which is poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink of this, and do this also in remembrance of me. Later, Paul would write, and he'd say, as often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. These are God's gifts to us as the people of God, the reminders of God's love and grace for us. Let's pray together. So, holy God, we give you thanks that um, you are a God who sees us as your children. And we pray today that as we gather around this table that you would just meet us here with your grace and your love and remind us again who you've created us to be. We give you thanks for your mercy and for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The table is set. You're invited to come. Bye. 
You know, I love the old acronym for grace. Uh, It's God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. And here's the reality for you. That living water is always available to you. His 
joy is always available to you. His kingdom is always available to you. And so would you please, please, please know that the story that you got to tell yourself is, I am probably more broken than I realize, but far more loved than I can ever understand. Probably uh, more broken than I realize, but far more loved than I will ever understand. Jesus wants to nourish you. He does. Would you allow him to do that? And so um, if you're new here, really would love for you to have the courage to kind of self-identify, make yourself known. Info Center be a good way to do that. Got some stuff going on in your life right now and want to pray with someone. Right here to my right, we have folks who would love the opportunity to pray for you. Got any questions about the sermon? Back at that bulletin. All that can use, drop that in the offering baskets. And we'd love for you to consider coming and having lunch with, or dinner with us on Wednesday night at 5.30 for Cal Connect on Wednesday, 5.30 to 6. We eat 6.15, all sorts of fun Bible classes, uh, kids ministry, student ministry, all that's happening. We'd love for you to consider that. That's it. You guys have a great, great week. Hope to see you Wednesday night.